I was a child during the war. When the Germans came into Czechoslovakia, I was not yet six years old. Things were not explained to me. Children at that time were kept in ignorance of much of what was going on politically or otherwise. And it was not possible to ask questions because every time you ask a question, they just give you a slap. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Renee Hartman was born in Czechoslovakia in 1933, the same year the Nazis took power in Germany. By 1939, Renee, her younger sister, and her parents were living under German occupation in Bratislava, a city of 120,000 people, including 15,000 Jews. Four decades later, Renee is settling into a comfortable high-backed chair, getting ready to be interviewed by Laurel Vlock and Dori Laub. It's May 2nd. 1979, and the location is Dory Laub's office in New Haven, Connecticut. Renee is dressed casually in black slacks, a light brown knit top, and a beaded necklace. She has thick salt and pepper hair, and her large glasses reflect the bright lights used by the film crew. As the conversation begins, Renee recalls a moment from her childhood when she realized her cherished freedom to roam the streets of Bratislava was being threatened. I remember coming home one day and seeing my mother sewing on the star on my coat. And I remember saying, let's not do this because then we can't hide. And uh, she said, we have to. That is the decree. What happened in the town itself was the closing in of the neighborhood. We did not have a ghetto, and yet there was a ghetto atmosphere there because what happened is that certain neighborhoods where Jews lived, which were more elegant neighborhoods, they were told they had to leave. So they had to move into a smaller and smaller enclave, the main street of which was Judengasse. My mother had to take in about five or six people in addition to our family. We lived in a large apartment, so this was part of our sense that the community had to stick together. Even though there were no gates, there were no wires, we were not welcome beyond certain streets. I had always been a child that used to roam around uh, to my parents' despair, but so I got to know the city terribly well. And what I would do in order to be able to continue that sense of freedom that I had would be constantly to try to wear a scarf to cover up the Jewish star. But I did feel that every exit into the town outside of my immediate home was into a very hostile and dangerous environment that 
I always could be found out and I would have fantasies about what would happen to me if they found me out. The, but the worst parts for me at that time was watching the transports. And the transport would just suddenly appear. We would hear certain sounds of boots on the street. And usually whenever there was a transport, it was accompanied by 10 to 12 soldiers coming, marching together from house to house and gathering all the people, knocking on the doors and saying, you have an hour. And the transports used to terrify me because the speed of them was so horrendous where they were trying to force, they would yell at the people and say, uh, get out, get out, quickly, get out, gather together. You can't take this suitcase, you can take this suitcase, only a little bit with you. No, you mustn't take this blanket, and they would just force the blanket away. Uh, in the process also, there would be a lot of hitting, of, especially of old people and of sick people and children. It was the behavior towards the very people that they Jewish religion says you must have a great deal of kindness, which are the sick, the old, and the children. And most many of these people I knew very well. And I could imagine with the kind of devastation their experience was for them. Uh, often what would happen is if the whole family was not together, a child would be sent out to bring in the rest, try to, and that used to horrify me because there would sometimes be a child who would come running back crying, I don't know where Papa is. And so all these transports would get together on the street and the people would wait there, hoping that the rest of the family would come. And eventually what happened is that families were united at a central post because when the rest of the family came home and asked where the, they were, they would rush to the police station immediately give themselves up to the Gestapo. We lived on the fourth floor in the apartment and my parents were both deaf and I had a deaf sister so I became the ears. I would have to warn them that the transport was coming and what I would do is we would all rush in the back room and when they knocked on the door we didn't answer we were in the back room just trying to be as quiet as possible and we used to live in terror of these boots as a result of this the responsibility was on me to always hear what was going on because in any time I heard ten boots marching down around the corner I'd run immediately home tell everybody to go into the apartment. And it got so that we all got to be very, very good in spotting. We developed eyes that looked for everything, and I was the ears. In 1943, my family decided that they had to save part of the family, and so they decided to send my sister and me to a farm family out in the country for which they paid great sums, and I had to hide the fact that I was Jewish. 
And I remember my mother taking all the stars of my clothes and sending me off. I was taken by a person who was also deaf to his mother's home in the countryside, somewhere near the Tatra Mountains at the foothills. I was told never to tell anyone I was Jewish. If the priest went by, I had to cross myself. Uh, it used to be terrible to do that for me because I felt that I was going to in some way have to pay for this. But I nevertheless knew that I had my sister as well to take care of, who was a year and a half younger than myself. They used to poke fun at my sister, who was deaf, and I would be very protective of her because I was really told to take care of her. In the spring of 1944, the son came back to the farm and announced to me that my parents had failed to pay for the last five months of my stay there, and consequently somebody else was going to take care of us. In Bratislava itself, he bundled us up and we went back to Bratislava with him. When we went back to Bratislava, there were various people we knew who had papers, forged papers. When we said, where are our parents? They said they didn't know. I took my suitcase and my sister looking for a place to stay. And I would go to places where I knew people who were Christians. And I knocked on the door and they slammed the door right in my face. We had no money. We were scrounging around trying to find food. And uh, finally I said to my sister, we will die on the street, so we might as well just go to the police. And I went to the police and I said my name and I said my parents' name and I said I'd like to join them. They first laughed and then they realized that I was perfectly serious. I was immediately put on a truck and driven into Hungary. And that was in Sereb. I arrived there to discover that the pre two weeks before my parents had been put on the train to Auschwitz. This was the first time I heard about Auschwitz. And there was this very nice woman who immediately took me under her care. She said she was going to see what she could do for me to make me join my parents again. And for two weeks I was in Sered and she gathered food for me, she gave me two blankets and she said, do not let anybody know you have that. Say how old you were during all this time. At that time I was nine years old and uh, I had my sister who was seven and a half and to whom I had to explain everything, who, who had to be basically taken care of because she only knew the sign language and I could sign with her, but she didn't know how to communicate yet with the hearing people. And so I couldn't ever lose sight of her because the, in the milling of the people we could have been separated. 
And we finally were put on the train and I was told that I would be going to Auschwitz. And to me, of course, it was just an image of my rejoining my parents. And it was a cattle car. And my sister and I sat on the suitcase the whole five days that we were in the train. And I, in some ways, was terribly relieved to be there because here I was among Jews again. They were all strangers, but still the fact that they were Jews was very important to me. And during the whole process of our trip, we would have to stop because there was bombing going on. And at one point, it was so loud, and the car itself jumped the tracks. And we were told that we would not be going to Auschwitz, that we would be rerouted. After about three days, we arrived in Bergen-Belsen. And I remember the first night falling asleep. I had nothing to eat for a long, long time, nothing to drink, but I fell asleep and I remember thinking life had played a terrible trick on me because I wasn't in Auschwitz with my parents. And I remember saying to myself as I fell asleep, I will never stop looking for them. After being in Bergen-Belsen for about four or five months, I realized it was hopeless looking for my parents because the transports kept just coming in. And when I came to look at those transports, one of the soldiers who used to be very irritated with me all the time, especially when I started to ask in perfect German, could I please call out my mother's name? I knew my mother couldn't hear me, but I thought maybe somebody would, who knew that she was deaf would tell her that I had been calling out her name. I would call out her name over and over again. About doing that one day for about the fifth or sixth time, the soldier so lost his temper, he just picked me up and flung me against a stone. And I lost consciousness. And the immediate result was that I lost for temporarily my hearing was a sense of tremendous worry because I had to be my sister's ears. I had to hear for her. But after about five or six days, my hearing came back. Later on in Bergen-Belsen, I realized that my sister was being watched by the camp doctor. He would come by the children's barracks all the time, come to my sister, pinch her cheeks, pull her ears, and try to be very friendly with her. And then one day he said to me that he would be able to give us oranges and chocolates if I allowed my sister to go into the hospital for a few days. And my sister was perfectly well. So I couldn't understand why he wanted her in the hospital. And I just uh, was very sassy. And I said, no, you are not, because if you are, I'm going to kick you. I'm serious. I mean it. And so he laughed and then forgot about it. Later on, the block tester told me that he had hoped 
to be able to use my sister for scientific research because he was very interested in the fact of her deafness. And one of the things we had always been told not to, even if we were very, very ill, never to go to the doctors because they were not to be trusted. And so we avoided it as much as possible. At that time, there was the beginning of the typhus epidemic. And one thing I did receive from the woman in Seret was a small bag of tea, which I was able during the time of the typhus epidemic to exchange for a vaccine for my sister. And I was told it was a typhus vaccine, whether it was one or not, I'm not sure. But the fact is my sister never did get the typhus. I did. And so one of the saddest things in my life has been that I have no recollection of the liberation because I was totally ill with the typhus. I was very near death. Had I had to wait another two days for the English, I would not have survived. Was your sister with you? My sister was with me. She had curiously survived the experience without illness, but having turned into a very quiet, silent child and whose sense of the world was totally cut off. And during the time that I was sick, she had grown completely mute because there was no one to communicate with her. One experience which I haven't talked about was an episode which is the central episode of my life, which was when I was in the camp, I managed to find a roll of toilet paper. And I managed to also find barter something I had for a pencil. And I was writing down everything that was happening to me. I was about my longings, my fears, conversations I overheard, things people had said. And at one point, this roll of toilet paper was found in one of the searches by the soldiers. And I remember coming back from the appell, seeing a soldier sitting on the lower bunk with the toilet paper and rolling it and reading it to someone else and laughing and finding it very amusing. When I suddenly rushed up to snatch it, he pulled it away and he said, no, this is too good for you. And he took it with him. And of course, I heard the conversation. I heard what they were describing. One of the things that I remember him saying to the other was, she has a wonderful sense of humor. And I didn't remember writing anything funny in it. And I remember feeling, saying, you may have taken that toilet roll, but you haven't stopped me from writing. And that was when I vowed that I would spend the rest of my life writing.
After liberation from Bergen-Belsen, Renee Hartman and her sister were sent to Sweden, where they lived for three years at a facility run by the Red Cross. In 1948, an uncle brought them to Brooklyn, New York, and a year later, they went to live with a foster family in New Haven, Connecticut. Renee later earned a degree in library science and went on to work for public libraries in Hamden and Fairfield, Connecticut. Renee met her husband, Jeffrey Hartman, in the early 1950s. They married and had two children. Jeffrey was German-born and had been sent by his parents to live in England during the war. Together, Renee and Jeffrey helped launch the original project that became the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. Jeffrey died in 2016. Today, Renee lives outside New Haven, Connecticut, where she's an active member of her local Jewish community. She's an insatiable reader, and true to her word, she never stopped writing. Her book of poetry called Wounded Angels was published in 2007. If you'd like to learn more about Renee Hartman, please visit thosewhoarethere.org. That's where you'll find background information and links to additional resources. To hear more from those who were there, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to thosewhoarethere.org. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director, Stephen Naren. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomacek, Joshua Green, and Inga Dataya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Casal for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.